Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Welcome to This Week in Health IT. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell, former healthcare CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to Sirius Healthcare, Health Lyrics, and Worldwide Technology, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. We set a goal for our show, and one of those goals for this year is to grow our YouTube followers. Uh, we have about 600 plus followers today on our YouTube channel. Why you might ask, because not only do we produce this show in video format, but we also produce four short video clips from each show that we do. If you subscribe, you'll be notified when they go live. We produce, produce those clips just for you, the busy health IT professional. So go ahead and check that out. Common question I get is how do we determine who comes on this week in health IT? To be honest, it started organically. It was just me inviting my peer network. And after each show, I would ask them, is there anyone else I should talk to? The network grew larger and larger, and it helped us to expand our community of thought leaders and practitioners who could just share their, their wisdom and, and expertise with the community. But another way is that we receive emails from you saying, hey, cover this topic, have this person on the show. And we really appreciate those submissions as well. You can go ahead and shoot an email to hello at this thisweekinhealthit.com. We'll take a look at it and see if there's a good fit to bring their knowledge and wisdom to the community as well. All right, it's Newsday. And today we have Dr. Sanaz Cortez on the line. And good morning, Sanaz. Welcome to good the show. Good morning. Yes. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty well. You're in a different world than I am in. First of all, you're on the, you're on the West Coast, right? That's right. Central coast of California. And uh, my understanding is that you're with WWT and the work with clients has really taken off recently. I've talked to a bunch of people who are in the consulting world and we're starting to do onsite again, lots of calls, lots of things just going on around telehealth, lots of things around cybersecurity. There's just a lot of pent up work that is, is getting done right now. So you're probably more busy than I am, I would imagine. <laughs> it is pretty busy. Pent up's a good term too, because I think people have just a pent up desire to get back to face to face and whiteboarding and all the things we've had to improvise. So yeah, it's busy, but but a good good shift. Microsoft released their work trends index for 2021. I think that's going to be an interesting conversation. A CMS is going to permanently cover audio only telehealth and telemedicine for mental health, and I think we'll hit on that as well. We're going to talk about digital therapeutics. I want to start with a short conversation about HIMSS. You're going to HIMSS? I am. My team is going. Your team's going. I am scheduled to be there as, as well. I got an email yesterday from their head of marketing, I think, for HIMSS. And they said, 19, right now, 19,000 people are signed up to be on site. And to put that into perspective for people, I think the last one I went to was 40-something thousand? Yep. Yeah, forty three thousand was the last one I went to. Yeah, and I mean that's that's a lot of people. Twenty thousand will be roughly half that. I think they plan to make that up with with digital and virtual because they have a according to the email they have a robust digital solution, and that's one of the things we look forward to, right? It's everyone presenting their 
solutions. It's a great way to get to get best practices. How how will you approach that? And obviously, Nevada just did the mask mandate, so we went from vaccination only to attend, and you're not going to have to wear a mask to vaccination, and you will anywhere indoors at least. You'll be wearing a mask. How how is your team going to approach this? Do you have a, a like a playbook that you guys run? Like we're going to see as much stuff as we can, talk to as many clients. I mean, how do you how do you approach it? Yeah, and I think this year that's really key. Sort of planning. We're doing a lot of pre planning across the three physicians on my team. We've got a pretty good you know network that we've built the last twenty years. So just reaching out and trying to get some of that scheduled ahead of time because yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. The digital thing is new. We don't know how that's going to play out. So. We're just setting up a lot of um, chats ahead of time. And we're actually going to be in a partner booth demoing one of our kiosks that we did for CDC attestation. So hopefully we'll get some folks there. And I personally, as a physician, plan on attending some of the educational sessions and things like that. So hoping it'll be good. And maybe 20,000 folks will make it a little bit more intimate and easier to reach, <laughs> you know, reach people. So did, I'm being did optimistic. You, did you just say 20,000 people intimate <laughs> gathering? <It's, laughs> yeah. 20,000 still, uh, I mean, that's still a stadium of some kind. That's that's pretty big. All right. So I wanted to talk this this work trends index. So Microsoft started doing this, I think last year, they may have started before that, but last year is the first year I I picked up on it. It's a pretty extensive study that they do. They take information from teams and from surveys and other things that they do within LinkedIn, Office 365 and whatnot. They, it's actually across 31 countries, but this is specifically for the US. And they came back with a seven hybrid work trends every business leader needs to know in 2021. I, I'm gonna. I, I'm sure you didn't read this 60-page report in its entirety. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna highlight a couple of things I think are interesting from this for us to talk about. And the first I think is pretty obvious, which is flexible work is here to stay. Employees want the best of both worlds. Over 70% of workers want flexible remote work options to continue. Over 65% are craving more in-person time with their teams. I think those two things are are very interesting to me because they they almost would seem to be at odds with each other, but they're not. They want it to be flexible, but they do want to get back together with their teams. We're craving that in-person time, but we're also craving the... There was something exciting about getting into a room with your peers and collaborating. And there was an energy that's, that doesn't really translate as well across these these video mediums, I don't think. What, what, are, what are you hearing? What are you seeing with regard to virtual work? And where do you think this is going to go in healthcare? Yeah. It, and that trend is spot on with what we've seen within our company, within Worldwide. Because I think both sides of this personality spectrum, if you will, you know, those of us who are extroverts and have wilted a bit just sitting in front of the the computer and then introverts who I had folks tell me this is great like I I love being at home I don't feel like I'm I'm sheltering in place because this is a better work setup for me but I think both sides have kind of landed on this the center of yeah whichever end we're on it is somewhat nice to have the opposite so that's kind of what we've been hearing and so even for myself personally doing 11 WebExes a day. I'm happy to be back out on the field, but maybe not five days a week, right? So, but yeah, that's pretty consistent with what we've been seeing within our organization as well and with our customers. It's, it's going to be interesting with the, from the productivity standpoint. It is really productive, 11 WebExes, as opposed to getting on a plane, traveling here, doing this meeting, getting on a plane, traveling here, doing that meeting. It'll be interesting to see how that impacts 
productivity, but productivity is one of the things that they say we've sort of overdone in this work from home environment. Their number two thing is that leaders are out of touch with employees and need a wake up call. Some of the stats they give here, 61% of leaders say they are thriving right now. And those are people with decision-making authority, but that is 23 percentage points higher than those without decision-making authority. So for the people who feel like they're, they're in the know, they're making decisions, they can sort of influence their own world. They're doing pretty well in this environment, but uh, across, and they break it down. It's really interesting. Married, working moms, Gen Z, frontline workers, new employees, and single. They, they just ask them thriving or surviving and struggling. And it's interesting. When you get down to new employees, as you would imagine, single and Gen, Gen Z, you know, you're down in the 30% that are thriving, 30 plus percent that are thriving, and over 60% that are just surviving or struggling. Yeah, That's, that that doesn't seem to be a sustainable uh, model. How do we get past that? Is it a matter of engaging employees more? Have we not adapted our management styles to this new new environment that we're we're working in? Yeah, I think more than ever, this last year has really prioritized within the workforce. I mean, within all of our minds, how important the culture is of a company you work with. I think it's it's important we all looked at that as being a key factor of where we are, but this year really put a spotlight on it. And so I think the companies that are large, but have a really strong cult, they've responded. And within even our organization, they've responded, they've adjusted, they've done the best they can. And maybe they are more on the traditional side of that kind of adoption uh, curve, right? Startups and the world I came from was remote, right? Like this was sort of like, all right, like we're already on Zoom but we're going to make some changes. We're not going to go out to customers. And I think people were further along on that transition. But I think if you're more in that sort of larger corporate setting and you're not a decision maker, it just really rolled up to culture. But it's been nice to see companies shift, right? Like, so how is this sustainable in the future? A lot of the customers we talk to have said, boy, like this health system has always had our IT folks come in every day, five days a week, but we're going to go to fully remote. We're going to let everybody work fully remote. And those are sort of the changes that I never thought I'd see, right? Like in my lifetime. So, so I think that's just that it's cultural adoption, like anything else and sort of that timeline and curve that people sit on. Have, have you worked from home a fair amount of time? Yes. I mean, this last year and a half every day. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> prior, prior to that, prior to that yeah. you did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I work from home in the office and then on airplanes. It's interesting when I talk to people about this, when it first started happening, I'm like, I don't think we know what we're getting ourselves into. I've worked from home probably 15 years out of my career so far. It's it's hard. It's challenging. Some of these stats sort of lend themselves to this. Self-assessed productivity has remained the same or higher for many employees this past year, but at a human cost. Close to 20% say their employers don't care about their work-life balance. 54% feel overworked. 39% feel exhausted. And I understand where that work comes from, because when your home office is your office, it's you're sharing it with your home. And I know for me, early on in my career, I couldn't shut it off. I can shut it off just yeah. fine now. But, <laughs> but, but back in the day, I remember when we first started getting these cell phones, I felt like I had to respond to every email that came through at whatever hour it came through. And every text. And I think 
some people who are used to the office where they could compartmentalize it. I'm going to yeah. the office. Now I'm coming home from the office. They weren't used to that. And some of the things that took me 15 years to sort of develop in terms of I think people are sort of getting buried under that weight of not being able to make that transition that quickly. And they are responding yeah. to emails. Uh, they have some other stats here. Average meeting is 10 minutes longer. Time spent in Microsoft Teams has uh, more than doubled globally. The average Teams user is sending 45% more chats per week, 42% more chats per person after hours. Number of emails delivered to commercial and education customers in February when compared to the same month last year is up 40.6 billion wow. emails. Wow. Um, I can say 46%. I don't know where that billion is. 40.6 the- billion emails. There's been wow. 66% increase in the number of people working on documents in Office 365. And so we're actually giving the company more hours. We're actually giving yeah. the company more of our of our life. And I think people are, are potentially resenting it. I think it's one of the findings from this, from this survey. So at, as a manager, how do you, how would you approach that? I mean, if, if I put you back in healthcare and you had a team of 20, 20 people or whatever, how would you approach that to, to get in front of that, that challenge that probably just given numbers exists within most teams? Yeah, no, I mean, it, <laughs> I haven't always been a good manager. Like, like you, I was a workaholic. And it, when I was working at home, it, it was roll out of bed, get on the laptop, start pummeling people with emails and messages and fall fall asleep 13 hours later from exhaustion. So I've learned just in the last year and a half watching what it's like for people who aren't used to that environment, how to adjust. And I think one really important thing, and my boss does this, and this is, and I was not good at this, is to tell people I'm not going to respond to your emails after a certain hour. I want you to have that time with your family and I'm not going to respond to teams. And, and he does that sometimes. And I think that's been really important, right? Like I think letting people know it's okay not to send it to me because I'm not even going to be online kind of gives them permission. Cause I think it's just that fear of if you haven't worked remotely, how do I show that I'm productive? I need to be engaged and when it's 24 seven, and like you said, in your, in your house, it's hard to kind of turn that off. So I think that's important setting the standard top down, not going to answer work-life balance is important. Take your weekend time words that we should have been saying all along, but really important now. I coach CIOs and one of the lessons I had to learn as a CIO is that the, the position has gravitas. When you get an email from the CIO, it sort of goes to the top of your inbox and my team came down on me pretty hard. I, I did a 360 evaluation. They came down on me pretty hard for asking them to work on weekends. And I'm like, I never asked you to work on weekends. I don't understand what you're saying. It's like, you send emails all weekend. I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't. Yeah. At, I mean, email to me is like, it's like a, a letter. Get back to me yeah, when right. you're back. at. But that's not how they read it. They, they, right. they read it very differently. And so we have to have situational awareness and, and position awareness to realize that when someone gets an email from someone of your title, how are they going to respond? And I've, yeah. I've told many CIOs, stop sending emails on the weekend. Just don't do it. Um, yeah. But for me- write, write drafts and then hit yeah. send on Monday. Yeah, exactly. Right? Sometimes for yeah. me, it's like, I need to get it down on quote unquote paper because I'm going to forget or I'm going to lose track of it. So maybe put it in a draft folder and shoot it out Monday. 
I'm going to ask you to do, to rewind in your career and imagine you're a Gen Zer. This is your first job out of out of college. You go to work for a health system, and we just went through COVID, so you've not met any. This is probably pretty close because you joined WWT at a time where it, we were in the pandemic. But what they're saying here is Gen Z is more likely to be single early in their careers, making them more likely to feel the impacts of isolation, struggle with motivation at work and lack of financial means to create proper work space at home. So they're, they're not able to buy the, the ergonomic chair and, and set up an office and those kind of things. And they might be in, in a shared apartment with like three of their college roommates that right. they graduated with and that kind of stuff. Makes it very challenging. If I were to rewind back then, I mean, what are you saying to those people? That has, that has to be extremely hard because you're trying to learn the disciplines of moving from a college lifestyle to a work lifestyle. That transition is hard in and of itself. You're not meeting your peers face to face, which I would imagine is is hard as well. I'm trying to empathize with this Gen Z generation who graduated over the last couple of years, went into these roles. How can we help them? Yeah, it's as you were talking, the word empathy was flashing a neon in my in my brain because that's always key to being a manager. But I mean. God, the level that you have to really stretch your empathy skills to make sure you can wrap your head around that because that's 20 some odd years ago for me. And I was in medical school. So still, I, like, I can't even relate to what it would be like at 22 to enter a position in a corporate environment. So it's one of those things that it's so hard to relate to, which makes it that much more important to try to understand it. And I, I just have empathy. I have sympathy for these young people, because like you said, I started the day before the lockdown. I've never met any of my coworkers, but I've got 20 some odd years on them. And so we've developed these skills and we understand. And I I just can't, I I cannot put myself in that. I I can't imagine being in that role. And so having to be more empathetic and I, I keep coming back to worldwide. We have a great culture, can't help it. But I work with some of the young folks that have come into sales And it's really impressive what that organization has done with these new kind of hires where daily they have a lot of like fixed sessions. They're interacting with each other. They have an understanding of like what's going to happen this week. They're meeting with different departments. And I was thinking, boy, I I wanted that. Like, that's great. I'm glad you guys are having that. But that's hard, right? Like not every company has the bandwidth, the resources to be able to do that. So yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. Yeah. So empathy and awareness. I mean, that generation might need more formal uh, get togethers. Something I, I might've done as a CIO is say, all right, look, we're going to, we're going to identify this age group or anyone we've hired over the last two years. And every Friday morning, they're going to meet with a different executive. It could be the CIO this time. It could be the VP of applications. It could be the CMIO. It could be the chief security officer. We're going to treat it like a, a training session, but it's a way for them to interact, ask questions, learn about, about the company. The, the normal onboarding may have broken down through, through the pandemic. I, yeah. I hope people have really thought about this. Their number five is shrinking networks are endangering innovation. Their move to remote work made teams more siloed. And the CIOs I've talked to are aware of this. The, the the healthcare leaders are aware of this siloed nature that that tends to pop up, and I I think we're trying to be creative around it. But that's definitely one of the things to let's see. 
And even career opportunities like within your own company. I mean, <clears throat> who of us on our career path the last couple of decades haven't had an opportunity because we're face-to-face -to, -face to raise our hand for a project or an position or something that shifts us to a different part of that velocity. So it's how do you do that when you're young, you're new, and you, you don't even meet the people in the lunchroom or folks that you, you want to approach with those kinds of discussions. So it's, it's interesting because somebody <laughs> asked me the, the question of, hey, we're going to a hybrid work environment. How often do you think I should go into the office? And it was a younger person. And I said, as often as you can, if you feel safe, as often as you can. And they're like, well, why would I do that? I'm giving up some of my freedom, my autonomy. I'm like, would you like to progress in your career? And that was the number one thing. It's like, you can't, especially with your career, you can't replace serendipity. You can't replace yep. that just running into somebody saying, hey, let's go to lunch. Let's have a conversation. Even you, you think, well, that's within my own company, but you might meet a vendor partner. You might meet a consultant. You might meet somebody who changes the, the trajectory of your career. And that stuff doesn't happen. It almost has to be planned if you're working the way we're working. Yeah. It doesn't happen on Zoom. <laughs> right? right. Like that's there's 100%. There's no way to walk down the hall and see who's who's in every Zoom meeting. That would be right. an interesting feature though, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, number six was authenticity will spur productivity and well-being. The workplace has become more human. And they talked about the fact that more people have met each other's pets through, through Zoom, I guess. And more coworkers have cried with each other during the uh, pandemic which is an interesting statistic. I guess that has to, you have to get that stat through a survey. I, I don't think Microsoft Teams is tracking that. And then talent is everywhere in a hybrid world. So there is this belief, and one of the big statistics out of this thing is that, as we sort of shared earlier, that 40% of people may quit their jobs this year and 60 some odd percent are looking. All right, so from a talent perspective, healthcare system within the technology realm or, or even clinical informatics realm. I mean, just sheer numbers, 40% might quit their job. 60% are looking. It, even if you feel like you have the best environment in the world, let's take those numbers down a bit. 30% of your people are going to leave this year and 40% are looking. Mm -hmm. That's almost half your workforce is considering a job change. That's a significant amount of, of institutional knowledge you're going to lose, significant amount of training you're going to have to do, ramping up into a, a time frame when healthcare is really trying to accelerate. This is going to be, this, I would think this is one of those things that's top of mind. This is why we're spending so much time on this topic. People, you, you can't do the job without people and you need a great team in order to be successful. Well, and we're talking about IT, but if we do look at healthcare, 43% of nurses, that was the last stat I read, are considering leaving the profession, up from 17% in 2019. Leaving you know, the profession completely? Of nursing. Wow. So, Matt, let's look at that number. And then a third of healthcare workforce in general, doctors, technicians, folks that work in the hospital, are unhappy and thinking about leaving. And we were talking about Gen Z. When you look at that number, the breakdown of, you know, dinosaurs like myself, like the percentage is smaller, like it's closer to 10%, 15%. But 
as you move down to that under 30 age, it's north of like 60% of the healthcare workforce are thinking about leaving. So that's a scary number too, right? Like we've got to do something. We've got to make some changes because you talk about not sustainable. Interesting. This is anecdotal, but I was, I go to this thing called stretch labs where they, they do resistance stretching because I am very not flexible after sitting in this chair for as many hours as I do. And I was yoga. talking, to, I was talking to the lady who was yoga. Well, yeah, I was talking to the <laughs> I lady. Recommend it. Yeah, I was talking to the lady yesterday, and she said, "I said, so how'd you get how'd you get to doing this?" She goes, "Well, I'm a, I'm an RN by training, and one of the things is during the pandemic, she had four kids, and it really didn't work for her to be an RN, and she left and she started doing." this. I said, do you plan to go back? She goes, Oh no, never. It's like, wow. I mean, you just didn't like, she goes, it's, it's a really hard job. It takes its toll on you over, over a period of time. I'm like, yeah. Well, and physician burnout numbers have always hovered around 50%. I'm scared to see what the numbers look like on the next time we get these like national surveys. And then what do we do there? We all read the AMA projections of like, oh, we're going to have a hundred thousand doctor shortage. And then the next few years, marrying that with these stats that we're talking about, I think, yeah, I think it's really, we got to do something. All right. So we're going to compare our, our answers to the Microsoft answers. Then we'll go on to the next story. They have five strategies for the way forward. One is create a plan to empower people for extreme flexibility. And they have, and by the way, I'm just going to recommend people download this. This is a really good study. It's the, it's the Microsoft, what do they actually title the thing? Microsoft next generation disruption is hybrid work. Are we ready? It's the work trend index for 2021. It's loaded with great information. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, invest in space and technology to bridge the physical and digital worlds. They say up is upwards of like 50 to 60% of organizations are redesigning their workspace based on what's going on in the virtual world. That's mm-hmm. it. Combat digital exhaustion from the top. So uh, leaders have to be a part of, of really addressing that digital exhaustion. Prioritize rebuilding social capital and culture, reframe network building, and team bonding from a passive effort to a proactive one. And then rethink employees' experience to compete for best and most diverse talent. And that's going to be the interesting thing. We have some opportunities to recruit really from anywhere. Yeah. Uh, depending on, on the work environment we set up. But we also yeah. have to be, be aware that people used to, we only used to have to worry about them being recruited away from the hospital system down the street. Now we have to worry about them being recruited from any hospital in the country. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I, I don't want to change the course of this this report, but if you combine that with what, all the disruption, right? Because now, yeah, you're competing with workforce from the hospital down the street. You're also now competing with all these disruptors, like these big tech disruptors and these new models that have popped up, Amazon Care, where uh, all of those patient surveys show that that convenience trumps loyalty to your health system. So it is is a like we're at a critical point of really needing to shift the whole way that we think about healthcare, our workforce, how we deliver it, because these industry drivers just didn't exist a few years ago and. It's uh, it's an interesting time. Two more stories real quick. We'll only do three stories this week. We have the, let's do the CMS story. So CMS to permanently cover audio telemedicine for mental health. And so CMS has proposed that making it a permanent change to Medicare coverage 
in the 2022 physician fee schedule proposed rule. And so here's in, in plain English what they're saying. Services are limited to, and so this is the, the caveats around it. So they're always worried that when they do something like this, it will increase usage significantly. But I guess they looked at this and they said, that's not a bad thing to, to, to increase usage for this area. And they have seven rules around it. Services are limited to diagnosis, evaluation, or treatment of mental illness disorders available to established patients only. So you have to, they have to be one of your patients already. The distance site practitioner must have furnished the patient with an in-person visit in the last six months. The patient must be located at his or her home as the originating site, not another location. That's an odd one to me. I mean, we're talking telehealth here. I mean, yeah, but okay. So they have to be in their home for whatever reason. I can't come up with a reason, but uh, the distance site practitioner must have the technical capability at the home of the service to use interactive audio video modality with the patient. The patient is, oh, so essentially what they're saying is you have to use video if you can. If the patient is not capable, then they will reimburse audio only. That's number right. six. All right. And number seven, the distance site practitioner appends the claim of service level modifier to identify the service as audio only and to certify compliance with these requirements. Wow. You know, I'm glad they're doing this. They are worried a little bit about where where it goes in terms of usage. If there's a big spike, obviously there's more money. This is in the preliminary phase. So people can actually provide their input to CMS at this point. They can they can give their feedback specifically what they're looking is should all mental health, telehealth services codes be allowed to be used audio only? What if any additional documentation should be required in the patient's medical records? to support the clinical appropriateness of providing audio-only telehealth services for mental health? Should CMS disallow audio-only for certain higher-level services, such as level four or five EM visit codes when furnished alongside? So with you, what I'd like to do is talk about this in the broader scheme of things. This probably makes sense to everybody, right? They're looking at this going, absolutely. You, you You can do a mental health visit via phone, because a majority of it is discussion anyway, for the most part. It's interesting that they want the the video, I guess they want to have that added level of connectivity. But I'm seeing a lot of discussion in healthcare just in general that people want a significant uptick in what CMS will reimburse post the public health emergency. And I think they're gonna take this approach. I think it's gonna be targeted Along the way, I don't think there's just going to be this broad, huge amount of money that's thrown towards it. And if that's the case, then as health systems, we have to determine what we're going to build out and how we build it out, I would assume. Are you hearing a lot of discussion around how health systems are thinking about uh, telehealth at this point? Specifically to mental health, they're thinking we need help. We need more providers, right? I mean, I'm involved with a couple teletherapy companies from my past still very active with them and they can't keep up with the demand, right? Like they're, they, these health systems have been so understaffed as it is with these wait lists of like months in some cases to have their patient population see providers. And so now the last year and a half and based on these proposals and where we land in the future, it's like not even not slowing down. It's like floodgates. So health systems have 
they're just struggling. Like, how do we get more folks to provide these these services? And obviously that's going to roll up to far beyond the health systems, right? How do we change the training? How do we recruit more folks? How do we pay them better? Mental health providers are one of the lowest paid professions in healthcare. So just kind of looking education costs, loans, all these things roll into it. So, but yeah, health systems, what they're focused on is how do I get more bodies to, to meet these needs? Yeah, this has got to be a boom though for some of those, some of those mental health digital startups, I would think. Yep. I mean, oh, as, yeah. these, as these reimbursement models come into place, if I were a health system, there are organizations out there that much like you would outsource your emergency room or outsource portions of your physician practices and those kind of things. There are mental health companies that will outsource these kinds of services to, to health systems and make them available. And if you have the digital tools around it, they can either use their own or they can, they can come into yours. So there's a lot of different That's ways to do this, but this is one of the areas. I think we talked about this. I talked about this last week on the show. We had to do psyche valves for our emergency departments in Southern California, we couldn't really put a, a psychiatrist at each one of our locations. It would make no sense. But that's that was one of the use cases for telehealth. Here we're talking about, we're really talking about broad access to telehealth amongst a, well, it's CMS. So it's amongst that Medicare, Medicaid population, which has really suffered through the pandemic with isolation, loneliness, disconnecting, disconnectedness and, and those kind of things. Um, and, and not everybody has access to high-speed internet, right? And I mean, the rural populations, I think this is so important to, to keep push this proposal through and, and make this happen because they, they can't just hop on a Zoom and have a, a video chat. So when we look at, I think there was maybe like a 30% increase of people seeking mental health services over the last year, just new access requests. Yeah, it's the biggest yep. use of telehealth is, yep. is, is mental health. And um, audio only was a very large chunk. So if you look at who did audio only, it was majority, right? Like for mental health. And I mean, look, we talk about costs and overusage. This is one area that I, I don't want to cut costs, right? Like, I mean, and you're not cutting costs because if you take away access for people to get help when they're reaching crisis, I mean, what's the financial and human cost to that? So I think this just makes so much sense, right? I just think that this has to has to happen, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm just worried about the, we, we generalize the argument. And so we say CMS should you know, do this massive funding of all telehealth. And I think what CMS is doing is they're, they now have a year and a half worth of data and they're looking through it and saying, mm -hmm. hey, look, this is preventative, this is helpful, this is good. We're going we're gonna to recommend that this gets funded. And they're looking at these other areas. But when we have things like the American Hospital Association saying, oh, no, there should just be this broad whatever, I'm like, we're not making a good argument. We should have data as well at this point and be looking at it and going, here, here are the five to 10 areas where we think telehealth should absolutely get funded. Follow-up visits for fill in the blank. This should get funded at in-office visit. And the reason it should is because and we're going to make them come into the office anyway. And it's just a lot more, it's a lot more productive for everyone if they don't come into the office. I mean, right. um, so. Or if they don't crash into the ER. As a physician who practiced for many years and then now switching over to supporting health systems, I mean, just the cost of that one ER visit versus 
two or three tele or audio only sessions. I'm no math major, but it's an astronomical advantage. Yep, absolutely. All right. This, so this last one, digital therapeutics. Why are you high on digital therapeutics? Why do, why do you think there's, I mean, because you picked this story. So I'm, I'm curious why, why you picked this story and, and, and why digital therapeutics has an appeal. I'm more, I'm more fascinated by digital therapeutics than anything, because I think it's, it's kind of an unknown space. It's unknown, you know, frontier in terms of, of its space. Like, where is it going to go? The business model's weird, right? Like, it's not clear cut. The exit strategy's not clear. And yet we're seeing investors put so much money in this space, like with the prescription digital therapeutics. I mean, we're looking at $100 million went to pair therapeutics, which was like the first therapeutic company, by the way, that did a FDA approval for a prescription drug, uh, prescription digital, like four or five years ago, 160 million to another one recently. So we're seeing so much investment in this space, but the business model is unclear, right? I mean, very few physicians are prescribing this, like less than 5%. It's very limited treatment areas that lend themselves to software-only treatment behavioral health, some pain management, diabetes. It's not covered by payers, right? They want to see data showing that this is clinically and financially valuable to them. So that in and of itself is fascinating to me, all this money going in, but we don't know the business model. What's pharma going to do with this? We've all been watching what big pharma is going to do. So they've partnered with some, broken up with some digital therapeutics, tried to invest and do it themselves. Very few are doing that, by the way. So when we think about that, is it a digital companion? Like, do they want to increase drug revenue and use a digital therapeutic to give away for free to increase their drug? Or is it truly a prescription digital therapeutic that would be a standalone product? Does that cannibalize revenue? So they, a pharma sort of like, we're not really sure how we're going to do this and we're not really investing a lot of effort. So yeah, I'm fascinated, you know, by this market, where it is, how it's rapidly progressing in, in funding, but, you know, where is it, where is it going to go? Digital therapeutics startups are getting their fair share of investment dollars flowing into the healthcare industry. The amount of venture capital investment in digital therapeutics grew from $134 million in 2015 to $1.2 billion in 2019. And according to PitchBook, another $709 million was invested in the first nine months of 2020. So you have a fair amount of money heading in that direction. But along the lines of what you said, Pair Therapeutics is a leader in the field. But the announcement last month that it would go public in a $1.6 billion deal with a SPAC raised eyebrows. Pair sells three apps designed to treat opioid abuse, substance abuse, and chronic insomnia. But it's only expected to make $4 million in revenue. (laughs) So $1.6 billion a year deal four million in revenue. And they do go into some of the partnerships, insurance carriers and pharma that might make sense in terms of partnerships here. They also talk about the the challenge with with getting those kinds of longitudinal studies, those studies that sometimes take five, six, seven years and whatnot. Digital therapeutics don't have five, six, seven years of time, really revenue and whatnot to exist, but they almost need that in order to have that that kind of credibility around, are they actually making a, a clinical difference in what they are trying to, to treat? And so- Yeah. 
and it, and then even after that discovery to distribution phase that like you said could be many years you know, the fda and regulatory process it's not easy getting approval for these that's why there's only like a handful of, of prescription therapeutics that have received that and some will say well pharma it's three to five years two billion dollars for a drug so this is quicker faster better but we come back again to, but for whom, right? And who, who's going to support this? Who's the buyer? Who's the business model for this? So and I'm, we're working with some of these companies at Worldwide. We're, we're working with a handful of these. And, and these are questions that we are all asking internally and with the customer. And I think the answer is kind of unknown all around, right? Like even these companies are trying to figure out who they're going to be when they grow up. And it's also funny, I mean, to hear these like $100 million, I mean, I've launched a couple startups and I remember just asking for like $5 million <laughs> and the scrutiny of what's your exit strategy. We don't believe that such and so is going to buy you. And they ultimately did. But it's just crazy to see $160 million being thrown at an industry where we don't, we don't know. We don't know what that exit strategy is. It, it is really interesting. And, and it has two problems. And the one problem is insurance carriers won't pay for it yet. And the second is, as you mentioned, only 5% of physicians will prescribe or recommend them at this point. So we have a significant curve to get physicians to, to see the value and start to prescribe it. But why would they prescribe it if nobody's going to be paying exactly. for it? That would put it Yeah, that would put it right in the, the uh, consumer's and it is, it is an interesting space. It's definitely something to keep an eye on. The other thing is if it takes five to seven years to get FDA approved or, or whatever approval you're going for, you think the technology is going to change in five to seven years? Absolutely. That's part of the problem too, is that in order to get these things created and pushed out, it has to be a faster timeline on the FDA side, because that's exactly to your point. The technology will change. A lot of these are AI powered. The model's going to change. The machine learning is going to get smarter. And there's a lot of unknowns on the FDA side of how do we even handle this? We're not equipped to necessarily handle this type of solution. And so they're kind of struggling and scratching their heads and talking about putting in place these accelerated approval tracks for things like this. But yeah, you bring up a good point. There's like a fourth player in the unknown equation, which is the regulatory bodies and how they'll keep up with these technology. It is an exciting space. It will take off at some point. It'll be interesting if it folds into the insurance carriers who are using it as a way to keep people healthy and to drive their costs down, or, or pharma who's looking to somehow monetize it, or even the healthcare providers who are looking to augment something that they, they're, there's, yeah. it, but as, as we're talking, you can almost hear, we are at the, we're at the, I'm not even sure we're at the starting gate, but we're close to the starting gate, either on this, the, Olympic time right now. We're either getting yeah. into the blocks or we're just out of the blocks in this. And it'll be fun to to keep an eye on this and see where. Thank you very much for your time, your valuable time at this point with uh, with all the stuff that you guys are doing. And I, I look forward to catching up with you at Hint. Should be fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And yeah, looking forward to seeing you. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's, it's conference level value every week.
They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.